So we're still in our, our journey through the New Testament. We're working our way through Matthew. I should be done with Matthew around Easter this year, which is actually pretty fitting. That works out pretty well. Um, uh, I love it when that kind of timing happens. Um, but today we find ourselves at the tail end of chapter 20, and we're dealing with an amazing section of scripture. Um, I titled today, Three Lessons on the Road to Jerusalem. Because every now and then what you find is that um, in, the, in the Gospels, you find these long, long, long accounts, and then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, there's like these little shotgun things, like, like, the, like the author was, was writing and like, oh, oh, I, I forgot, and he just really quickly kind of writes stuff down, which is probably more true than most people realize when it comes to documenting things like that. But uh, I love it when Matthew does this because he gives us just enough details so we know what's going on, but also it's vague enough so that we can apply it in a lot of different ways, which is, which is really interesting. Um, now today, I want to look at these three things. These are the three lessons that I see in this section, verses 17, uh, or, yeah, 17 through 34, I believe it is. Um, and it is, uh, Jesus said, and no one believed, that's lesson one. If you want to lead, then you have to serve, lesson two, and boy, isn't that important. And then we're going to finish up with this little, this little blurb in the end, be louder than the crowd. So be thinking about those um, as we continue on. We're going to start off in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, and Jesus says this. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, and he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Was there any vagueness in that section of Scripture? Like, when he got done speaking, were you like, I wonder what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem? No, this is one of those sections of Scripture that makes you irritated at the disciples at the way they reacted to Jesus' crucifixion. They were like, oh my gosh, we didn't see this coming! In the last five chapters, Jesus told them this same thing four times. And they still were stunned when it happened. And I don't think it's because they weren't listening I believe they were listening to Jesus, and I don't think they were just dumb. I think that they do something that we all do as well. And you're hearing from God, but what you're hearing, you don't take in. You take in what you've always believed about what they're saying. And so we, we, we hear from God, and we read God's word, and we see what God is saying, but we take in what we want it to mean, and then that becomes the dominant narrative, not what God actually said, which is really frustrating. I can imagine God going, how many times do I have to write this down and in how many languages before people start to believe? They were probably thinking something along the lines of, well, yeah, I mean, he'll, you know, they'll, they, they always do this. They try to, they try to beat, up, beat him up, but surely, surely he's not going to die. I mean, come on. He's the Messiah. He's not going to be crucified on our behalf. <clears throat> and if they did beat him up, he'd just heal himself. You talk about convenient. When Jesus can heal things on command, go ahead, beat me up. I'm going to be fine in a minute. It can be very frustrating to see this. And when I was reading it, I was like, huh. And it made me start to think along these lines, but thinking of a different question. 
What is it that I know that God has said and said it clearly and said it plainly and even said it multiple times and I still don't believe it? Not because it's not clear, not because it's not right there, but because I don't want to believe it. I want to believe what I believe. This is what I call the Jesus told me illness. And this is in the church a lot today. I know what your Bible says, but the Spirit spoke to me. And it's a little different. No, a Spirit spoke to you, but it wasn't God. (laughs) Because God doesn't contradict himself. Could you imagine waking up in the middle of the night or standing in front of a congregation and trying to explain this? I know what the Bible said, but God told me that this was written wrong, that when they they translated the Bible, they got this part wrong, and I'm going to give you the secret to it all. Poof, Mormonism is born. (laughs) This, This is how cults start, folks. Christians would hear something like that and go, I don't think so. I don't think that's how that works. I think I'm just going to go back to what it says. When we're reading Scripture, the first thing, you guys tell, you hear me say this a lot, Scripture can never mean to us what it could never meant, have meant to those it was written to. So when people say, well, I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to tell me what this means today, st- stop. Dig into the word and figure out what it meant then. Now you know what it means today. Because God didn't change his mind over the centuries. Why? Well, see, see, it meant this in the first century. But today, I mean, with the internet, I could never, I would totally get canceled if I said something like this. So now it's going to mean something different. That's never going to be that case. It is always going to be what it has always meant. And so our goal is to find the original intent of the author. When you read the Bible and you start looking for the intent of the reader, that's when we get in trouble. That's when we get funny ideas. Have you ever been to a Bible study where people say things like, well, what does this mean to you? Let me help you out. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what it means. Can you imagine standing before God in judgment and going, well, yeah, but God, I was at this Bible study, and the guy teaching it said, you know, what did it mean to me? And so, like, I told him, and, like, he didn't tell me I was wrong, so, you know, Lord, it was this small group leader you gave me. Sound familiar? Lord, is this woman you gave me? Didn't work then, doesn't work now. God says what he says. Here's a great modern example in, in the modern, independent, charismatic church, which, by the way, we are part of, but we don't go here. So there is a group within our own denominational you know, flavor, however you want to look at it, that move in this direction. And I'm going to, tell, I'm going to show you just briefly what this is, where it came from, and I'm not picking on anybody. If you, want to see me, if you want to see a detailed explanation of this, go to one of my podcasts, and I do a very detailed breakdown of this movement. How many of you heard of the Seven Mountain Mandate? I cannot believe that this is back. 
It's a form of theology called dominion theology. It came up in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and then it was quickly squashed because it's nutso. And now it's back. It's like somehow this thing got risen from the dead, and I can't figure it out. But it is going all through the church. I can't figure out why. But let's take a look at this. This comes from two guys who had a vision, literally two guys who had a vision, about the role of the church in the last days. And what we have to do, please listen to this, what do we have to do as Christians to get Jesus to come back? Okay, there's the first problem. What do we have to do as Christians to finally get Jesus to come back? What are we, casting a lure up into the clouds and trying to get Jesus to come back, trying to bait him into coming back? This is, this, is, this is crazy, but this is the fundamentals of this. The idea is that there are seven mountains of influence, business, government, family, religion, media, education, entertainment. Now, here's the thing. Should, the idea is that as Christians, we should have significant influence over these areas. Is there anything wrong with that? No, we should have influence in these areas, especially the religion area. I mean, I'm just saying we should probably have some influence there. There's nothing wrong with that, but wait, there's more. <laughs> this is where it gets funny. The idea is that once we take these mountains, okay, and here are the guiding scriptures. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. And... Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, those are the two main guiding scriptures within this theology. So once we take the mountains, we become, we, we control these areas within our world, we can now make earth like heaven. And only when earth is like heaven Will Jesus come back? Hallelujah. All we have to do is recreate a place we've never been <laughs> to get Jesus to come back because that's what's supposed to happen in the end days. Has anybody read their Bible and learned what the end days looks like? Because it doesn't look like heaven. I'm pretty sure it's not even close. The problem is not that they want to try to put Christian influence in these areas. The problem is that they believe that we are to take dominion over the world and make the world like earth, and then and only then will Jesus come back. The first problem with that is Scripture says Jesus will come back when God decides he will come back. That's it. When will you return? When the Father sends me. When's that going to be? I don't know. Jesus is probably saying, do I look like I have a watch? Duh, hasn't even been invented yet. Secondly, there's some descriptions in the Bible about what the end times are going to look like. Some of the words used are like this. Wars, famine, plagues, persecution, suffering. If that's heaven, I don't want to go. So why do people fall for this stuff? That's what I'm trying to get at. Why do we fall for this stuff? 
We fall for this stuff because we want something from God that God never promised us. God never promised the Jews that the Messiah that they always believed would come would be the one that would show up. It's one of the reasons why they never actually, they didn't actually recognize the Messiah because he came in a way they weren't expecting. Jesus came to earth the way the Bible described he would, not the way they wanted him to. How inconvenient for everyone watching. And in the end days, the end days are going to happen the way the Bible declares them to happen, not the way we want them to happen. And in our lives, our faith, our morality, our ethics, everything we have in us to live a godly life as a godly example should, uh, should be conforming to what Scripture says that they should look like, not what we want them to look like because society says it's okay. I know God says that I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to because they're my friends. If your friend was going to go knock over a store, which means rob, by the way, if you're not used to that kind of terminology, and you were thinking, well, yeah, they didn't have a really big paycheck this week, so they need some money. So you know what? I'm not going to condemn them. I'm probably going to go help. I'm not going to actually rob the store. I'm just going to drive the car. Is that okay? Why isn't it okay? They're poor. They're hungry. Why isn't it okay to steal? If you're stealing from someone who has plenty, duh, anyone ever watch Robin Hood? <laughs> Obviously, that's like one of the gospel books that was left out. Why is stealing wrong? It's not wrong because society says it's wrong. It's wrong because God said it's wrong. That's why it's wrong. I feel the same way. Why is sexual immorality wrong? Society accepts it left and right. You can't think of a sexual perversion that someone isn't trying to make okay now. It's wrong because God said it's wrong. Society can accept anything it wants. But when I stand before the Almighty God, i got to answer to Him. And the thing that I'm answering for is whether or not I'm living according to the map He gave me. Now, it would be really awesome if the Bible was just like, don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do that. It doesn't. It tells us about the character and nature of God and the way he interacts with man in real-life situations through history, through society, through culture, through, through the growth of, um, uh, of a nation. We get to see all of that and see exactly how this stuff is applied. But we have to actually believe what he says. Jesus spoke to his disciples face-to-face Multiple times about something that was coming, they still didn't believe him. The disciples get criticized for that a lot, but how many times do we read through our Bible, we barely even remember what we read, and then we go through life like what we read doesn't matter? The question comes back to do we take God at his word. Let's do ourselves a favor and not make the mistake that the Jewish leaders made and actually believe what God says. I know, it's a radical idea. But just trust what he says. You don't even need a degree in Hebrew and Greek to do it. You can really just read the Bible you have. It's pretty easy to understand most of the time if you just trust what it says. All right, moving on to number two. 
If you want to lead, then you have to serve. Jesus continues on this way. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he says to her, what do you want? She says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. You are, are you able to drink the cup that I am, uh, I am to drink? Then they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that there are rulers of the Gentiles, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great, and their great ones exercise authority over them. If it shall, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this, <clears throat> let's look at the first question. What is it that she was actually asking? So in this particular time, the Jews believed that what Jesus was going to do, even though up to this point he had told them multiple times that what they think is coming is not coming, that his kingdom of not, is not of this world, he is here to seek and to save the lost, he has demonstrated for them nine ways to Sunday that, they are, that he is not who they think he is. But they are convinced, just like we were just talking about, what they used to believe they want, but they don't want what's right in front of them. They believed that Jesus was going to conquer all of their earthly enemies, was going to destroy Rome and everybody else, and he was going to set up a final kingdom on earth where the Jews ruled the world, and Jesus would be their king, basically. This is what they predominantly believed. And so for this mother, she's saying, please let one of my sons sit on your right and sit on your left. And what that meant is that they would rule the world second only to Jesus. Uh, that's, um, I don't know about you, but that's a, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty big ask. Would you mind if these two sons of mine, who barely get along as it is, would like, you know, rule, rule the world for you? I'm asking as a mom. I'm not a mom, but you get that. Jesus answers the question the only way he can. You have no idea what you're asking. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is not interested in setting up an earthly kingdom. It's never been God's plan. The kingdom that Jesus will rule is slightly different. He asked them, can you drink of my cup? And they're like, yes, we can. Okay. Sure about that? Now, everyone at this particular time knew what drink of my cup meant. It meant, can you bear the suffering that I will bear? And they're like, yes. Now, Jesus knew full well that they didn't know what they were talking about. And he does say, you will drink from this cup, but not to the extent which he is, because Jesus is about to suffer for the sin of all humanity. And if a man could do it, then God would have had a man do it. But a man can't do it, never could. That's the whole point of why Christ came, to do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. Because you, you cannot drink from this cup 
We think about that first lesson. Jesus has tried to tell them over and over again, but they're still convinced that what they've always thought is going to somehow come true. And Jesus tells us what this, what this really means. The idea of ruling in heaven, second only to Christ, is not up to anyone but the Father. And it's really interesting to me that Jesus even points that out. Jesus says, that is not my choice. You're going to have to go to upper management for that one. That's the Father. Doesn't that wonderfully speak to the simple fact that Jesus is his own individual and the Father is his own individual? And it also reminds us that the Holy Spirit is its own individual. They are one, but they are also three. I think that's a beautiful explanation or, or, or addition to that. Now, then Jesus talks about leadership. Now, in a secular society, Jesus says, don't you know the Gentiles rule over each other? In a secular society, we use what's called a top-down leadership structure. And this is not the leadership structure that God wants. This is not how God's church is supposed to work. It's not how his people are supposed to work. It's not how heaven works. And the idea is in a top-down situation, what you have is you have a few people at the top who can see the whole picture. They see, they see all of the parts to everything that's moving. And because they see all the parts, because they can see the big picture, they have to control the lives of those beneath them for the common good. You see this in companies, you see this in governments, you see this all over the place. You even see this in a lot of churches. We have the big picture, and so as pastors and elders, we will help you control your lives and tell you what you can do, what you can't do, you know, come to your house, look through your refrigerator, make sure you don't have anything like a beer, heaven forbid. That's a top-down system. Now, the easiest way to understand this and why this is not a godly system, and, and, and I'm going I'm I'm to walk carefully as I walk through this, is honestly the way our current government structure works. No, 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 we live, we, we live in a democracy. No, no, we don't. You should check that again. We live in a republic. It's a little different. But see if this rings a bell. We have officials in Albany, in Washington. We have organizations like the World Economic Forum and the UN that make global decisions, and then they pass those decisions down to the citizenry, telling us what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, letting us know that we have too much money, letting us know that we're, we're too happy, letting us know we shouldn't eat beef anymore, we should eat bugs, you know, um, that, 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 that people in upstate New York need to stop relying on things like, you know, combustible fuel like natural gas and fuel oil, and we should rely on something more dependable and environmentally friendly like electric. These are also people who have never stepped outside of Albany, have no idea what the North Country is like, and have never been without power for two weeks in the middle of January. But it's okay, it's for the common good, because they see the big picture, and if you have to turn into an icicle for that big picture to, to come about, so be it. Because they need to control the larger group for the benefit of all. But in reality, the only ones that benefit are the people at the top. That's what a top-down structure is for, to make sure that those in control manage everything that's going on below them, Okay? Because it's your life has to reflect their beliefs. This is so critical to understand. Your life has to, has, to, uh, has to fall into the category of what they think is right. Okay? 
Another example is something, it's, uh, would be like this. In some of the largest cities in our country right now, regardless of how you feel about this issue, this is just an example, I'm not, but this is a good example, okay? Right now, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, 10 million illegal immigrants are being housed in nice hotels, given food, medical care, and education, all for free. Okay, I don't have a ton of problem with that until you look at it in a different way. In those same cities, homeless veterans who fought for this country are living on the street because they have been told by the same government officials spending money in one area that there's no money for them for housing, for food, for medical care, for education. Now, regardless of how you feel about that issue, that is a real issue, but that is a better example as what a top-down leadership structure looks like. Because they have decided that this issue is more important than that issue, one group gets cared for and the other one does not because they have decided for those beneath them where the resources need to go. That is a top-down structure. November's coming. But I want to I I make sure you understand something. We vote for our leaders. And whether they have an R or a D next to their name is irrelevant. And you've got to get that through your head. Is that person you're voting in looking to empower themselves to control your life or empower you to live your life? See, one is godly. One is not. One is godly. One is not. So if you're just voting based on, the, on the, the letter next to their name, you're making a big mistake. You have to be an informed voter, not just a member of a party. So when we think about godly leadership inside the church, what we should be seeing is a bottom-up leadership structure. And this is becoming more and more popular, but this was actually pushed back against for a long, long time. Now, in your own life, this should be the way you leave, you leave your life. Because at some point in time, no matter where you are in the world, you are leading someone, either as a supervisor at your job or as a parent with children, pastor of a church, running a business, regardless of where your life is, at some point in time, you are leading someone, and this is the structure that God wants you to have. It's a bottom-up structure, and this is really hard because it's grounded in humility. I don't know if you've realized this, but humility stinks. (laughs) Humility is hard. The basic idea behind bottom-up leadership is that the leaders still see more of the whole picture than those they lead. That's true. Anyone in a leadership position, if they are not more aware of what's going on around them than, than everybody else in the organization, they shouldn't be in that position. The leader still sees more of what's going on, but they use that understanding to move everybody else to another level. They see a need, so they, instead of dictating to those below them what the need is and what they need to do to make, uh, it'd be like me coming to you saying, you need to do this because I believe this needs to happen. The bottom-up leader is saying, this needs to happen. It affects a certain number of you. How can we help you take care of this problem? That's bottom-up leadership. 
So the easiest way for me to explain this is honestly just to point the mirror back at me. Uh, because as I'm walking through this, if you feel I'm not doing this, you have my own words you can use against me. So here we go. What does it mean to be a successful pastor? Obviously, you got to be six foot four, dark hair, very muscular. <laughs> Just the right amount of facial hair. I weigh as much as someone that's six four, but that's a different conversation. Now, obviously, what it means to be a successful pastor in the United States is that you grow a gigantic church, you make lots of money, you have the nicest car and the nicest house in the church, you start selling books, you give prophecies, you heal people, and you demand that people address you as prophet or apostle. Is that what it means to be a successful pastor? Because that's what I see being promoted in a lot of independent churches around our world. It's very, it's very normal. Whenever I meet someone for the first time and they introduce themselves as apostle or prophet so-and-so, my first thought is, oh, God. All right, so we got to do this, right? So I, I, I reintroduce myself. Hi, I'm Chef Pastor George. <laughs> oh, I forgot, luthier. No, most of you have no idea what that means, but that's fine. So if we need to throw around titles... It's like someone who gets a PhD in something like engineering, but they're not a medical doctor, and someone's like, is there a doctor in the house? And you're like, well, yes, they are. Quick, come over here. And you're like, ah, I can build you a roof trust, but I'm not, I'm not doing this. But you insist on people calling you doctor. Good for you. Nice job. Well done. Now, of course, the other sign of being a successful pastor is that after I grow this church and I run it for 20 or 30 years, I hand it to one of my children because they're obviously the only ones in the church capable of leading the church into the next generation. Because after 30 years, I have not been able to disciple anybody else. I know that might sting a little bit, but I've seen that scenario play out over and over and over again, and it drives me nuts. Now, if that's the right person to take over the church, fine. It's not up to me to say. But I have a really hard time believing that that's the only person in the church that has ever been capable of stepping into leadership. But that's what we do. Why? Because churches today tend to be top-down. And when you're top-down, this is mine. And in order for me to maintain control over it and a say in it, I have to hand it to someone who will never argue with me. So I hand it to someone that I can control. You understand the difference? As opposed to handing it off to someone who's just going to take it and do what God wants them to do with it. Very different views on what this is supposed to look like. Now, honestly, I think to be a successful pastor, it means having a church, no matter what the size, 10, 12, 20, 30, 500, who cares? But that church is actively involved in their own personal growth as a believer, and they are actively involved in outreach, gospel ministry, sharing their testimony, and being a light to a lost world. That's what it means to be a successful pastor. Size of the church, irrelevant. Quality of the building, irrelevant. The amount of technology you embrace, irrelevant. I mean, we're pretty pretty decent-sized church. You don't know how many times I've been asked, have you ever thought about putting in a fog machine? Fog machine, really? My mind is clouded enough. Why would I pump fog into something that is already like, no. 
like walking into the old smoking section of Cracker Barrel. Who wants to do that? No. It doesn't matter what those things look like. In a top-down church, when someone begins to grow in their ministry and they begin to grow in their influence, top-down leaders will start to get nervous. They'll start to get worried that they're going to lose influence in the people who are now going to this person. They start to get worried. What if they have more say in the lives of those people than I do? Because obviously I have been to all of your homes and I visit all of you regularly and I call you all regularly because we're like, like this. They get nervous and they have a tendency of squashing that ministry in some way by changing over the leadership or switching around how it's supposed to work so that the authority within the lives of individuals stays within a very small group of people. That's top down. Mine. Does that really happen, Pastor? Yup. Before I finally saw it, it happened to me multiple times. And people actually warned me that it was happening, and I defended the people doing it. You don't know them the way I do. You ungodly and ungrateful little heathen. How dare you tell me the truth to my face? Once I realized what was happening, a whole lot changed. Actually, realizing that, that that was happening actually led me here. In a bottom-up church, when someone's ministry begins to grow, the leaders try to recognize that God is working in that individual's lives, and they try to help direct and support the growth of that ministry so that they grow in a healthy, strong, godly manner. So that they become who they should be no matter how much it affects me. Think about this. Top-down leaders create expectations. Bottom-up leaders create opportunities. What's the difference? An expectation is you need to please me. An opportunity is let's set standards that you're going to have to meet, and I want to make you set those standards. An opportunity, you drive yourself. An expectation, you're worried about me being disappointed. Those aren't the views you need to be looking at. Top-down leaders need to be the smartest and most talented in the room, even when they're clearly not. Anyone ever been in one of those meetings? Those are great in corporate meetings when you get the person who's never done what they're talking about, but they're letting you know about their five-point plan of how they're going to make you more successful in a job they've never done. I love those people. Bottom-up leaders look for people who are more capable than they are, more talented than they are, and then they empower them to do what they're good at. Top-down leaders look for people who can help them reach their goals. Bottom-up leaders know that your success is their success. Think about this in terms of the church. Think about this in terms of your own life. Are you trying to work with the people in your life to achieve your personal goals in income, in relationship, 
in business, in whatever? Or are you finding people around you who you can make successful because you know their success is your success? I used to train young managers in the restaurants, and one of the things that they all had a hard time with, you get these really talented line cooks, and they're just like, I just don't understand why I can't get promoted. I'm the best cook here. Yeah, I know. And you're more than happy telling everyone you're the best cook here. But you won't train anybody to do what you do. Well, of course I don't want to train anyone to do what I do, because then I wouldn't be the best cook here. I said, you mean that you'd be freed up to move forward because now you're not putting the restaurant at a disadvantage? Well, that's just, oh my gosh. I actually, I actually, one of the guys I was working with, he looked at me, he goes, are you telling me that I'm too talented to move forward? I said, yes. Because I, I do the work of four people. I know, and I don't want to hire four people to replace you. So do me a favor. Train two people to work as two people. Now I've got you covered. Now I can move you up. He was so mad. He's now running a very, very large facility in Buffalo handling all of their food service because he finally got it in his head that helping other people succeed allows him to succeed. Imagine in ministry and in life if the church realized that if I can get everybody involved in the little activities to make them the most successful believers they can, the whole church succeeds. What a mind-blowing idea. It almost, it's almost like when the Bible says that you should teach and train the body for the work of the ministry, that it meant it. So weird. Here's the last one. Top-down leaders will ask you why they should get involved. Bottom-up leaders will ask you what you need to be successful. Why should I give you my time? Do you know how precious my time is? As opposed to, what do you need? See, because if I give you what you need to be successful, you know what I get to do after that? Nothing. But I get to be involved in some of the credit. Low effort success, folks, it's amazing. Which one do you think Jesus was talking about? Top down or bottom up? Which one do you think his life emulated? Which one do you think he was the living example of? When he says, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. He never lorded his ability over everybody. He came under everybody and even told the disciples, these amazing things that you see me do, you will do more. You will do more. So as a believer, in your marriage, in your family, in your career, is that how you're leading people around you? Is that the person you want to become? Or do you want to be the guy on top dictating policy to all the little people below? Flip it. Make everybody around you successful. Make their lives more godly. Enrich them. And you watch to see what God does for you. All right, last one, and then we're done. This will be really quick. Be louder than the crowd. Jesus says this. He says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus said to them, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Then they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Okay, the healing on this one is pretty obvious. But let's look at something that I think is, is a little bit more implied on the inside of it. What are you seeking God for? As an individual, what are you seeking God for? Is it guidance? Is it healing? Is it some sort of direction in your life? See, there, for, for all of us, if we're believers, we're constantly seeking God for something, and there's a voice inside you that is calling out to God, asking God to do something. But there are also voices in the crowd around you saying, shut up! Knock it off. Can't you see that the important people are trying to do something here? Can't you see that the normal people are trying to get something to do here? Shut up. You're ugly. You're not talented. No one wants to hear from you. Just be quiet so that the normal people can get what we want from God. There's always the negative voice letting you know that you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not tall enough. Never heard that in my life. You're not, you're not capable. I tried out for the basketball team like every year. Never happened. I was the school's soccer team mascot for a while. Woohoo! Take what you can get sometimes, right? We know the list goes on, but here's the idea. What would have happened to those guys who wanted a touch from God, who were crying out to the only one that can help him, if they had listened to the negativity of the crowd they were in? If they had just listened to those, and I'd be willing to bet some of those people telling them to shut up knew them. They probably knew them by name. They may have been friends growing up. But they're so excited about what could happen for them that they never paid attention to what Jesus could have done for those below them. And in society, those people would have been below a lot of people. In this particular time in history, if you had this kind of an illness, it's because God was judging you. You were the unlovable, the unworthy. So they felt justified telling these people to shut up. Be quiet. If God loved you, you wouldn't be in the situation you're in right now. No, maybe God still loves you, and maybe the situation you're in right now is simply because that's the situation you're in right now. And if you want God to lift you out of it, be louder than the crowd. Lift your voice above the negativity and don't stop yelling. Don't stop speaking. Don't stop asking. Don't let yourself be put down. Don't forget that persistence is a good thing. It's when we stop because we just get tired that we end up settling for a mediocre life. We end up settling for the, it just is what it is. Nope. You keep yelling. You keep calling out. You keep screaming to Jesus. Over here. Son of, son of God, over here. Until you finally get the answer. What do you need? What do, you, what, what do I need to do for you? All they asked, they didn't say make me rich. All they asked, open my eyes. So we did. 
They would have stayed blind if they listened to the people that were around them telling them to be quiet. Let's not make the same mistake. Sound good? So three things we need to remember from Jesus' walk to Jerusalem before he goes in for the triumphal entry. Believe what he says. Lead from humility the way he taught us to. And don't listen to the voices that are telling you to sit down, be quiet, and go away. Or that you can't. Even if you never achieve your dream, never stop crying out for it. I think these are good things to know. I think they're good examples of what God wants us to do in our lives. And I think it gives us the backbone that we need to live in the world that we're in right now. This world is pretty screwed up. We need to rise above that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you're continually doing in this place, what you do in our lives, how you continually guide us. Lord, let us not take your word for granted. Let us not read what we want out of you when we read your word, but let us read what you're asking us to do. Father, help us to not only learn to follow as godly followers, but help us to learn to lead as godly leaders. And Lord, let us not ever give in to the voices that are telling us to sit down and be quiet when we're crying out to you. Help us to ignore those voices and to just keep calling to you until you answer. We ask this in Jesus' name.